Let's read together Mark 2, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read down to verse number 13. And it says, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out of the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And we'll leave our reading off there. Let's again ask for God's help this morning, shall we? Father, this morning as we come to your word, Father, we pray that you would meet with us and that you would speak to us. Father, all of us carry burdens and cares and needs. And some of us still carry the greatest need of all. And Father, we ask that you would speak to us and minister to our needs. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think your greatest current need is? And we could all think, oh, wow, what's what's my greatest current? And all of a sudden you have a list, right? Just like that. You can start thinking of all the things that you need taken care of and dealt with in your life. If you would ask others around you what they thought your greatest need is, what do you think they would say? The story in the text of Jesus healing a paralytic presents a dilemma between what we think and what God thinks our greatest need really is. There's a beautiful interchange, a back and forth between the different characters of the story in which Jesus, in amazing grace, relates with them and shows them their hearts and their greatest need. Mark portrays Jesus beautifully so that we see his abundant grace in speaking to them his omniscience as God knowing their hearts, and his authority as God on earth to forgive sin. And there's some excellent lessons tailor-made for us at Casey Bible Church from this story. So what I want to do, you can see on your sheet there, I've got like, there's eight observations. It doesn't mean eight points. It's just eight observations from the text, and there's really only two points at the very end. But there's some things I want us to go through and just notice about the text, and then we'll make some applications for us at the very end. The first thing I want you to notice is the crowds came to Jesus. It says in verses 1 and 2, It was heard that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. Why did they come? Why did you come here this morning to Casey Bible Church? 
Jesus' reputation, the word about him had spread abroad. We know from verse 28 of chapter 1 that the word went around everywhere in the surrounding district of Galilee telling the story about how he had cast out a demon. We know that from the story of uh, the, the uh, leper that was cleansed, that he went out and proclaimed it freely, and the news spread all over the place. And Jesus' reputation was spreading all over the area. He had been teaching with authority in the synagogue. He had been casting out demons. He had been healing uh, various diseases at the, at the door which the people now crowded close to hear. His preaching of the good news of the gospel, his cleansing of the leper, all these things that spread the word all over that whole area about Jesus. And when they heard that he'd come back home, now whose home it was, I think it probably was Simon Peter's, but it just simply says he was at home. They came to hear him. They came to see what this was all about. And the crowds were so many and so great, they packed the house full. Now, I did a little research, just out of curiosity, really, about housing structures in Jerusalem and Capernaum and those kind of places. And even small houses were built on the basis of a courtyard, an inner open area surrounded by rooms and then a roof above. And often the, the, uh, the way the walls were built, they would sort of project past some of the interior walls and the roof would kind of create a bit of an overhang. And the people would either gather in the courtyard below or in the rooms or up on the landing. And there would sort of be a big surrounding area, almost like a theater. And so they were all crowded in, and there was no room, not even near the doorway, the entranceway into that courtyard area for anybody more to get in. It was at capacity. It was standing room only. And what is Jesus doing? We notice, secondly, he is speaking to the crowds. What did Jesus do with the people who were gathered to him? You can think about what we might have done. But it simply says he was speaking the word to them. He spoke the word to the people. The great need of all men and women, is to hear the word of God spoken to them. That's our first need. We have a greater need beyond that, but we need to hear the word of God spoken to them. It's the matchless grace of God that communicates his mind and his will to his creatures. I love the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so on, and then God said, let there be light. And he began to speak to his creation. As one guy, uh, Peter Adam, he's a uh, pastor here in Melbourne, said this way. He said, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he preached a sermon to it. We go to the book of the Hebrews, what do you find out? God who spoke in time past in different ways to the, through the fathers to the people has in these last days spoken to us by or in and through his son. God is always in the business of speaking the word to his people. It's the matchless grace of God that communicates his mind. Maybe Jesus explained the gospel. Maybe he explained faith and repentance. Maybe he taught about the kingdom of God. We're not taught, told what it is he said. We simply know that Jesus was speaking the word to them. If you read through the book of Mark and take your, do a little analytical study, do an inductive study if you like. And you're going to find there that one of Jesus' priorities as you go through the book of Mark is teaching and preaching of the Word of God. In 1 and verse 14, Jesus came preaching the gospel. In 1 and verse 21, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. In 1 and verse 38, let us go somewhere else, the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also. In 2 and verse 3, he's speaking to the Word. That's our text. 2 and verse 13, he's teaching them. 3 and verse 23, he was speaking to them in parables. And so on through the book, 31 times 
in 16 chapters, it mentions Jesus teaching and preaching the Word of God. Jesus was in the business. He was occupied. It was his priority to teach the people of God. Thirdly, notice the four, or they came bringing the paralytic to him. It says there in verse number three, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, the context would give you the idea that it's more than the they, is more than just the four. It's probably a whole group of people of which four guys were picked on to carry this mat, this pallet, this stretcher with the man on it. So there's at least five, but probably a few more, and four of them are doing the carrying. They had heard about Jesus as the one who could do all these amazing things. These men were convinced that Jesus alone could heal their friend's paralysis. This man had a need, and his friends were determined to get him to Jesus. Now, they all had faith. When Jesus looked, he says, he's seeing their faith. All five of those men had faith. It was a plural thing. Now, imagine for that poor man laying on the mat there, that living as a paralytic would have been a very difficult lifestyle. Even today, uh, living as a paralytic, paralyzed person is a difficult life. We have modern conveniences and wheelchairs and electric this and that. Uh, if any of you, my nephew and niece, are not paralyzed, but they live essentially as paralytics because they have something called spinal muscular atrophy, and they're both well outlived their life expectancy. They were told they would die before they hit their 20s. They're not about... They're now both in their 30s, and they're wheelchair-bound. My brother-in-law, for all of their growing up years, had a very difficult life looking after and taking care. My brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut her out of it. They were both very busy. It was a very difficult life. And I can imagine the first century before electricity, before hydraulics, before any of those kind of conveniences would make it easier, this man's life would have been difficult for him and for all those that look after him. He had a need. And it was a pretty big need. You and I have needs of different kinds. I've got you know, needs of my own. You've got needs. But this man had a need. He couldn't lift a finger or take a step or do anything to which to help himself. He had a need that needed to be met. But these men were determined to get their friend to Jesus, whatever the cost. Whether it was getting around walls, getting around people, getting up on the roof... Those roofs often had staircases, but sometimes they only had a ladder. So even getting him up the stairs onto the roof was a difficult job, but they were determined. They were going to get their friend to meet Jesus. Uh, By the way, the problem of digging through the roof of someone else's house, well, that's a bit of a problem, right? I mean, you don't normally go up to someone's house and start shoving tiles aside. Uh, The way it worked basically was they had slabs of thin limestone laid down and they would cover it with kind of a a mixture and lattice work of uh, thorns and and branches and mud and actually it was fairly easy to sort of dig through it and pull it all aside and when you got done you could kind of put it all back down get some more mud and plaster and plaster it over and it wasn't the end of the world in fact uh, history records that in getting large objects into a house it wasn't uncommon for them just to dig through the roof, put a hole, drop the thing through. We do it today in delivering uh, large objects. I remember a time in, in uh, living in Canada, we, had to, we built this massive stereo unit. I had to get it into a house. We got a huge crane up and over and put a hole through everything and got the thing into the house. It was a huge undertaking. Well, these guys had to do the same thing. But again, they didn't have any helps like hydraulics or electricity to do it. It was hard work. 
Why would they go to such lengths and extremes to get their friend there? Because they knew he had a need that had to be met, and they were convinced, here's the key part, they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the only one that could meet this man's need. Notice, fourthly, uh, he perceived the faith of the five. The verse 5 says, Jesus, seeing their faith, and then he spoke to them. No words of the five are ever recorded. Not in any of the different accounts. There's nothing mentioned about what they said. We simply read that Jesus saw, or more likely the word is perceived. He recognized in his own mind and in his heart, he saw the faith of these men and women. These men are coming to him with the paralytic. In Mark's description of Jesus' thoughts and words, we are presented with Jesus as the omniscient God, knowing the hearts of faithful men and women. I want to read to you. Uh, This is A.W. Pink wrote a description. He has a great little book, by the way. If you look up on the internet, you can find it. A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God. Very short chapters, very well written, and very good to help you understand the attributes of God. And he said about God's omniscience, He knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, on earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice, nothing can be hidden from him, and nothing is forgotten by him. When Jesus forgets our sins, he deliberately chooses to forget. That's not a a slip of the memory. Okay, nothing is forgotten by Jesus. Jesus saw their faith. In his omniscience, he could see into their hearts. He could see the reality of a faith there. And listen, for us, that's great encouragement, you know. Be encouraged, people. Jesus see, he saw their faith. He also sees your faith. He sees the inner workings of your heart. He sees your heart that desires to love and worship and serve the Lord. He sees the heart that's going on inside of you, the faith that motivates your actions. God works in you both to will, and then he sees what you're doing. He sees how your heart is responding. If you're sitting there thinking, you know, I really want to serve the Lord. I really want to love the Lord. I just feel sort of like I can't find a way to do it. Listen, God sees your heart. God sees the love that you have for him. God sees the love that you have for those around you and a desire to reach them with the gospel. Be encouraged, but also um, be motivated. God sees the heart inside you. If God's laid something on your heart as an exercise of faith for you to do, be motivated and be encouraged to carry on with what God's laid on your heart. He saw these men's faith. He saw what they, how they acted. Be convinced of Jesus' authority, his omnipotence to forgive and to heal and to comfort. Bring those in your circle of influence to Jesus Christ. Bring them in prayer. How many of you got somebody in your life that you would just love to see come to know the Lord Jesus? I got one. I think everybody could say, you know what? Think for long enough, there's somebody in my circle, some friend of mine, some family member, some relative that you watch them, you see them, and your heart breaks because you know they need the Lord Jesus. Bring them to Christ. Bring them in prayer to start with. Find ways to put the gospel in their hands. Find ways to bring them to the Lord Jesus, whatever it might be. Fifthly, notice that Jesus spoke to the paralytic. Not only did Jesus perceive their faith, he also responded to it and spoke to them. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Again, 
Look at the grace of God and the authority of God on earth to forgive sin. Every single one of us has committed sin. All, the Bible says all have sinned against God. Sin is the breaking of the rules of God, breaking the laws of God. We're born in sin. We sin by nature. We sin by habit. We sin because we want to. But God's righteousness and his holiness require a payment for sin committed. It's death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Sin incurs incurs a debt against God. Breaking his rules means there's a penalty to be paid. The wages of sin is death, but, but God in measureless grace provide the payment for sin by sending Jesus Christ to die in our place. See Jesus as God speaking to the paralytic's greatest need. See and hear the grace of God in Jesus' words. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's amazing grace. Why is it so gracious? Because the forgiveness of that man's sin would still cost Christ his suffering and his death and his bloodshed on a cross. For Jesus to say those words to him, he was taking on himself this man's sin. And he knew he would have to deal with it in his own death. Notice that the five men thought that the healing of paralysis was his greatest need. You can see them, right? Working hard, thinking, oh man, it's going to be so good. We'll get him all the way up there. We'll put him in front of Jesus. He'll be able to walk and we can all walk home together. No more carrying a pallet around. No more him laying while we all work and struggle to bring him. They thought his greatest need was his paralysis. But that was only part of his need. That was a legitimate need, no doubt about it. But it wasn't his greatest need. You may think that what you think your need is, is your greatest need. You may think that money is your greatest need. Most of us have money somewhere in our list of needs, right? You may think it's the healing of a physical ailment is your greatest need. You may think better education, a new job, a different partner, a new whatever is your greatest need. But listen... Forgiveness of sin is your greatest need. Having forgiveness and being reconciled to God is our greatest need. Being restored to a right relationship with God is your greatest need. It's my greatest need and needs to be met. There are other things that may be legitimate needs, but consider for a second. Just stop and think. What if the story was different? What if we took that whole section about forgiveness of sin and just pulled it out? Okay? Jesus had just healed his paralysis. He's now able to walk, but still condemned to hell. Consider the tragedy if Jesus had given us just what we thought we needed, right? Able to work in a better job, but still condemned to hell. Able to have a wonderful new relationship with the guy or the girl of your dreams, but still condemned to hell. Having near perfect health, but still condemned to hell. Having wealth beyond comparison or compare, but still condemned to hell. Our greatest need, listen, is forgiveness of sin. The need of the people around you is forgiveness of sin. It's not what they think it is. It's not new money. It's not more of this. It's not a bigger house and more cars and all the rest of the stuff that we think we so desperately need. Our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. But notice also, number six, the scribes reason, and the story goes on. You see, Jesus was not merely dealing with the paralytic's need. He was also dealing with and bringing to the surface the needs of the scribes. 
Jesus knew their heart's reasoning and he revealed it to them. In so doing, he reveals who he is and what he's doing. Listen first, the reasoning of their hearts. Listen to what the scribes are thinking. Why does this man speak this way? These scribes, they saw and recognized him as no more than a mere man. Despite the reputation that Jesus had earned, despite the teaching and healing and casting out demons and cleansing lepers. Listen, as scribes, one of their ways that they knew that they would recognize the Messiah was that he could cleanse leprosy. And the reputation of Jesus had already gone out all that area. They knew that he could cleanse leprosy. And yet they're still saying, why does this man speak this way? They further reasoned to themselves, he's blaspheming. In this comment, they literally charge God with sin, although it's in ignorance. They don't realize what they're doing, but they are charging God with sin. They reason their hearts, who can forgive sin but God alone? And this particular reasoning is right. It is God alone who can forgive sin. But surely the evidence, all that they had heard, the speaking and so on, presented to them, surely it would testify that he is, in fact, God. But no, that's what they're reasoning. Why can they not see from all that Jesus said and did that he forgave the man's sin because he is God? And the reality is their hearts were blinded, blinded perhaps by jealousy, blinded perhaps by ignorance. Blinded, perhaps, because they just didn't, didn't think that this would be the Messiah. They kept looking for something bigger, something better, something maybe like a king that would come in. And he is the Messiah, but they can't see him. And so Jesus speaks to the scribes, number seven. But Jesus not only perceived and knew the faith-filled hearts of the four men, the paralytic, Jesus also knew the reasoning of the unbelieving, blinded hearts of the scribes. Jesus is omniscient. God to know the reasoning of the hearts of ungodly men. And so he responds to their unspoken thinking. He speaks of his authority as a son of man on earth to forgive sins. And notice also, it's the first time Jesus uses a very particular title he uses over and over and over and over again in the book of Mark, son of man. That's the first time it pops up. And when he says son of man, it should have been a very clear trigger to them about their own Old Testament, which they would have known backwards and forwards. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And this is the verses there, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The word for dominion in Daniel 7 means governmental or power or authority. So in Daniel 7, which was a great promise, a great hope for them, was, listen, the Son of Man is coming and he will be given authority. These scribes would have known that like you know the back of your hand. They were so familiar with the Old Testament. The word there is the word for authority. Notice also the context of Jesus' authority. It's on earth. I I tripped over that. I thought, why does Jesus limit it, that's my choice of words, to on earth? But it's not a limitation at all. What he's really saying is, listen, God has authority to forgive sin, but the Son of Man is standing here on the earth, and while he's here on the earth, he has authority to forgive sin, just as surely as he has authority in heaven to forgive sin. God became man, came to be born, to live, to suffer, to die. God became man with authority 
still as God to forgive sin. God on the earth, that's indescribable grace. We were singing about grace before. This is God's grace. The very fact that he's standing there talking to them, arguing in a sense, reasoning with them, even though they don't believe in him, that's tremendous grace. It's the grace of God who, that he came to earth to walk amongst us. It's in grace that he preached the gospel to them and to us. It's in grace he taught the way and the word of God. It's in grace that he healed diseases and forgave sins. It's in grace he cast out demons. And it's in grace that he went to a cross to purchase all those things. Forgiveness of sin, casting out demons, healing, and so on. It's the irresistible grace of God that Jesus is God, present on earth with men, with authority to forgive sin. Well, meanwhile, back in the story. The fact of Jesus knowing the hearts of ungodly, wicked men is a great warning to us. It really should be. Listen, be afraid, unbeliever. God knows the thoughts and reasonings of your heart. Nothing else stands out in this passage to you. Think about this. God knows the very workings and thinkings and reasonings of all of our hearts. God will not judge you merely by what you say. God knows and will judge on the basis of the state of your heart, which he in omniscience knows perfectly. Be afraid. If you're a hypocrite, no one's going to admit to being a hypocrite, because if you admit to being a hypocrite, then you're not a hypocrite. But if you're a hypocrite, if you're living two lives, one life with your friends outside of the church context and one different life, a different person here with all of us, be afraid. Maybe you're like the scribes. Maybe you can fool all those around you. But listen, you cannot fool God. And I can speak from personal experience. A number of years I lived my life as a, my late teens and early 20s, and I tried to live that double life. And I thought I had everybody fooled. I had most of them fooled, but there were a few that could see straight through it and knew what was going on in my heart. Be afraid. God knows the thoughts of your heart. And when he deals with you, it's not on the face that you put on for just so many people to see. He deals with you on the very basis of the thoughts of your heart. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He sees these scribes and he, he knows in his heart what they're thinking. He knows what's going on inside. And so he reveals their thoughts to them. He gives them back so everybody can see and hear. Be afraid. If you have not faith in God and refuse to believe, God knows your heart. You can fool or lie to everybody around you, but you cannot lie and fool God. He knows the thoughts of your heart. The great need of the scribes, the hypocrites, the unbelievers is to hear Jesus revealing their thinking to them as a warning. And you know what? If you think about it, the very fact that he said, listen, and he stopped them and he brought their thoughts to the service was a tremendous act of grace. You know why? Because they had the opportunity still left in front of them. They could seek forgiveness. They could recognize Jesus for who it is, who he is. It wasn't. His words weren't just a one-way street to condemnation. He was offering them, by showing them their thoughts, he was offering them forgiveness and grace and love. Eighthly, Jesus speaks again to the paralytic. He commands him to rise and take his mat and go home. The grace of God in forgiving the man lying at his feet is beautiful and it's amazing. It really is. 
But even more, Mark describes for us the grace of God that allowed all of them and us to see the proof of his forgiveness. Jesus is is not harsh. He is not bitter. He's not nasty. In fact, everything he does, all of his words are full of grace and full of truth. Listen to his words. But, and listen, so that you may know. In other words, he's listening. Look, look, Look at this. Here's how you can know for sure that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the man, the the paralytic, sorry, I say to you, pick up your pellet and go home. And the paralytic responds in immediate obedience. His healing, like his forgiveness, is immediate and perfect. His response is that of a truly forgiven man. He gets up and he obeys immediately. He just walks right out. Can you imagine? They couldn't get him in the door because the crowds are all packed around him. But he picks up his pallet after being a paralyzed man and walks toward the door. You can just see the Red Sea parting, right? As they're all getting out of his way as he goes walking by. This is the guy that was paralyzed. And I didn't put it on your notes, but I, late last night I was laying in bed thinking about this. And I thought, you know what? In a sense, we almost missed the point. Look at how the crowds respond. In verse number 12, it says, It's so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. That's the beautiful end point. Take your finger, stick it in Mark 2, flip over one page backwards to Mark 1. I want you to notice a couple of things. I just saw this in my inductive work a few weeks ago. I want to show you now. Uh, Mark 1, verse 22, it says, and it's the same group. It's the crowds that were at Capernaum. This time they're in a synagogue. In verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Look down at verse 27. Same group. They were all amazed. They debated among themselves. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands unclean spirits, and they obey him. Again, they're amazed. And back down to 2 and verse 12. They were all amazed and were glorifying God. They were rejoicing. They were praising God. I can imagine a worship service just kind of broke out as the man went walking out when they realized this one standing right in front of them is no ordinary man. He isn't just speaking the word of God to us. He has authority to forgive sins. And they glorified God that this man had been healed and forgiven and the word of God was spoken. That ought to be the response of our hearts. When we hear the word of God spoken, when we see men and women coming to faith in Christ and believing and lives being changing, it's to glorify God. And I can bet without any hesitation that those four men were cheering and glorifying God and excited along with all the crowd. Their friend had been healed. Their friend, even more than that, had been forgiven. Well, there's lots more we can look about in the, in the story, but I want to just go now and quickly make a couple of uh, lessons and, and um, some encouragement for us. First of all, from the four friends, I was thinking about what do we need to hear? How does this message speak? What does it tell us as Casey, Burge, what, Casey Bible Church? What do we need to hear? And first, two things came to mind. The four friends and Jesus, right? They really are... Not the, well, the four friends aren't the main players in the story, but I think there's something from them that we can learn. What they did is the way it should be for us as disciples of Jesus Christ. In last week's message, we looked at the fact that the Jesus is risen, therefore we must go and make disciples of all the nations. We looked at that in Matthew 28. Making disciples means exactly this, bringing them to Jesus. 
bringing them to him that he can meet their greatest need, bringing them to him to hear all the things that he taught, bringing them to him and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All of that process is all about bringing people to hear Jesus, to meet Jesus. Listen, Casey, bring them, bring the ones in your life to meet Jesus and their greatest needs will be met. They'll have grace and the resources to deal with the other legitimate needs. But their greatest need is for forgiveness of sin, is to be reconciled. I love the picture, by the way, of the paralytic and his, and I'm assuming, okay, it's an assumption, I'll give you that, that his spinal cord was somehow broken. And I honestly believe that the only way that it happened was Jesus, in a miraculous form, healed that broken spinal cord, and he brought back together two things that were once apart, and he was healed. He had full use of his limbs. What is it that sin does when it's, when it's restored? Sorry. What happens to us when our sin is forgiven? We are reconciled. We're restored to God. We have that relationship again with God, right? And what the people around us, those we meet in the streets, our neighborhood, our workplace, our, wherever we go, their greatest need is not what they think it is. Their greatest need is to meet Jesus and to be brought to the feet of Jesus, to have their sins forgiven, to be washed clean and restored to God. What good is it? What good is it to feed a man then send him down the road to hell full of food? Doesn't do any good at all. Yes, his stomach is full of food and yes, he can live another day and so on. But his far greater need is to be forgiven of sin. What good is it to clothe a man and send him well-dressed to hell? What good is it to give a guy a whole bunch of information and, and knowledge and send him a really smart guy to hell? Their greatest need is to be forgiven. Bring them. Bring your friends to meet Jesus. I don't mean bring them to church. And that's a good place. That's a good way to do it. But that's not the only way. Bring them by praying for them. Bring them by putting gospel tracts or gospel literature. Bring them by sitting down and building a relationship with them over a cup of coffee and sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need to hear from this message. These four men, they were determined that their friend could meet Jesus. They were determined and nothing was going to stop them. They kept going. They kept finding every obstacle they found. They found a way around it. And they finally, by hacking a hole through the roof of the building, they lowered this man into the presence of Jesus that his need might be met. Well, when you say it like that, it kind of sounds easy, doesn't it? Just bring them to Jesus. The reality is, it's not easy. In fact, it's very difficult. We live in a world where, if you use the paralytic as sort of a picture of the sinful guy that needs the Lord... We live in a world where the paralytics are not interested in coming to meet Jesus. We live in a world where they're so, they're so full of seeing religion and seeing the church at its worst and all of that, that you mention Christianity, you mention the gospel, and immediately doors are shut and people's ears are plugged up. They don't want to hear anymore. In reality, you could look at these four men as they're carrying their friend and they get close to the house and they realize all those people are standing there. They could have given up and taken him home. But they were determined because they were convinced that Jesus is the only answer for their problem, for his greatest need. Listen, don't give up. How many of you are praying for somebody to become a believer and have been praying for that same person for a long period of time? A few of you. Yeah. I have a person in my life, a couple of them. You think, Lord, are they ever going to believe? Don't give up. 
Don't be turned aside. Don't get distracted. Keep finding ways to bring them to the Lord Jesus. Be faithful to God's call. Strive according to his power working in you to bring them to Jesus. The obstacles are going to seem endless. But they're not endless. Eventually, we carry on. We struggle and we strive in faith. We hear what God is calling us to do to bring them to meet Jesus. And God will answer our prayers. Uh, I heard the story. Um, you know me in stories, right? I always get the story idea, but I lose all the details in the translation somewhere on the line. There is a story about a man. I uh, read it in uh, Mark Dever's book on evangelism. And uh, he was saved in Ireland, and he was um, a great evangelist. In fact, he was so convinced and so committed to evangelism that he wouldn't let anything deter him. And he got... He was working in this little town in Ireland, and eventually he became pastor of a church. And then another church in America said, would you come over to America and work with us and teach us evangelism and preach the gospel and so on? I'm going to say the man's name was Thomas Hardy, but I think I might have got that a little bit wrong. It's not the author, a different guy. Anyways, this part's true, definitely on it. Uh, they got on a boat. He and his little daughter, his wife had died of some illness some years earlier, and he put his little six-year-old daughter and himself on a boat to travel from Ireland to America around about 1912. And in the middle of the night, a little girl who interviewed at 80 years of age remembers a story like it was yesterday. Her daddy woke her up in the middle of the night, and she said, uh, Sweetheart, the boat has hit an iceberg, and there's another boat coming to rescue us, and they're putting some lifeboats in the water. I'm going to put you in a lifeboat and make sure you're safe, and then I'll, I'll come on the ship when it gets here to rescue us. And his daughter said, okay, she was six years old at the time, and he put her in a boat in a life jacket, and he put the lifeboat in the water, and she never saw him again. And of course, you know the story, it was a Titanic. And the Titanic went down, and, and there was a man lying on some wreckage, and he saw a figure in the water hanging on to a piece of wood, and the man was nearly hyperthermic, and he pushed himself over to the guy on the wreckage and said, are you saved? And the man on the wreckage said, no. And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, and thou shalt be saved. See ya. And he swam away. And he heard him calling out to people and hanging on bits of wreckage, are you saved? And people would answer one way or the other. And he would shout out back, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, and you will be saved. And he would swim to the next person. After a while, he came back to this guy on the piece of wreckage. And now his voice is all slurry because the hypothermia is taking over. And he called out one more time, are you saved? And the man said, no. And the man in the water said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and you'll be saved. And he let go of the piece of wood and sank to the bottom. He died. Um, that story is a true story. The, a man's name, I believe it's Thomas Hardy. I'll find the book at home and get you the right name. But that was an evangelist. Even in his dying hour, he was doing everything he could. Not the water, not the wreckage, not the ruin, not losing his life would stop him from going from person to person and saying, are you saved? Listen, Casey Bible Church, these four men in the story... Nothing deterred them from bringing their friends to meet Jesus. And I want to finish up, not with them, I want to finish up with the main person in the whole story. I want us to focus for the last few seconds of our message on the Lord Jesus. Look down that story, and we can see Jesus in grace and in love, speaking the word of God. Hear the word of God. 
Look at the grace of God that he spoke to us. It was his first priority to speak to the people of God, the word of God. See Jesus in grace. He is God become flesh to walk this earth living and speaking and healing, casting out demons, cleansing lepers, and then going to a cross to suffer and die for his people. See Jesus this morning. The omniscient God who knows your hearts and your thoughts and your faith. If you're a believer here, be encouraged. God knows your heart. He knows the faith. See Jesus also, the omniscient God, with authority and grace to forgive sin. If you're here this morning and you don't know what it means to truly believe in God, to truly have your sins forgiven, look to Jesus and see him, the one who can forgive sin. And finally, for all of us, see Jesus in grace, speaking to our greatest need of all. What an awesome Savior we have. Amen. Let's, uh, would you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then Deb's going to come and lead us one more song. Deb and John. Loving Father, this morning we come before you again, and we give thanks to you for your grace. And Father, it's a word that we use as part of our lives as Christians, and we use it easily, we use it quickly, and we fail sometimes to realize exactly what it means. And Father, we thank you that there was nothing in us that prompted you, that demanded that you act on our behalf. But Father, we thank you that in your grace, in your favor that you poured on us, on who were completely undeserving, you responded to us. Father, the fact that he came and spoke the word, he came and called men and women to repent and believe the gospel and to follow him is amazing grace. It's indescribable grace. It's grace unmeasured as we were singing a little while ago. Father, the fact that he was willing to stop and speak with these scribes and reveal the thoughts of their hearts to them that they might turn and confess and believe is grace. And Father, the fact that you called us and you brought the gospel into our ears and our hearts and our minds is grace. It's love unlike any other. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And Father, we give you thanks also that just as he is risen and he has been given all authority in heaven and earth, Father, he has left us with a great work to do. To go and to bring others to experience the same love and the same grace that we have experienced. Father, we pray that you would give us, by your grace, the determination of these four men, that no obstacle would stop them from bringing others to meet Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for the forgiveness that we have. We thank you, O God, for the relationship that you have brought us into. We who were completely undeserving. And Father, we pray that you would cheer our hearts. Father, for those this morning here who are discouraged for one reason or another, Father, we pray that you would encourage their hearts with the thoughts and the reality of the grace of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, the authority of God to forgive sin, to cast it away as far as the east is from the west. Father, we thank you also for forgiven sin. 
And we thank you, Father, for a right relationship with you. Father, we cry out to you for those who are in different needs this morning. Lord, there are physical needs in our church. We think about Karen and Daryl and others, Lord, that are struggling with different physical ailments and needs. And Father, we pray that by your grace, you would give mercy, you would give grace, you would give a comforting arm to help them through. Father, we pray that you would heal tissue and nerve and, and bone damage, that, Father, there might be health. Father, we pray for our little church. We pray, O oh God, that you would work, work amongst us, walk amongst us, Father, that you would encourage us to carry on with the work that you have given to us, that you'd work a revival in us. Father, we pray that you would restore to us that love that we had when we first came to know you, that we would just, in so much in love with you, would take the news and the message of Jesus and share it with everybody who will listen. Father, we ask you these things and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.